Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you, the beloved listener of Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM. Um, if you are joining us for the first time, welcome aboard. This is a wonderful show. I am delighted to share this space and time with you as we continue our thought-provoking conversations with our esteemed guest. My name is Nimrat Obambele, and I'm eternally grateful for your audience. Our conversations on this glorious uh, morning focuses on courageous leadership displayed or not displayed by our leaders. Bill Gates once said, as we look ahead into the next century, leaders will be those who empower others, close quote. I'm sure most people get the gist of Gates' wording. However, in my view, most people don't have the luxury of the next day, the next week, let alone the next century. We need urgent and yet sustainable change that would undermine the colossal of greed and destitution, which we have seen in public and private sector organizations. This, for me, begs the question, what do we make of public officials who are self-serving, corrupt and condescending in their remarks? How do we justify islands of prosperity in the sea of abject poverty? How do we do that? According to the World Bank rating in South Africa as one of the most, the most unequal country in the world, the report found that top 1% of South Africans own approximately about 71% of the country's wealth, while the bottom 60% only controls about 7% of the country's assets. What is glaring uh, based on this statistical overview is a, a destitution of chronic proportion. We need to address mental destitution in the same way we need to address physical manifestation of destitution. We need courageous and decisive leadership to change the status quo. But how do we achieve this? That's the million dollar question. In the same way, when you cast our eyes on the, on the horizon at the global scale, how did Taiwan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore underwent a rapid industrial, uh, uh, industrialization, which maintained exceptional high growth of more than 7% per year. These countries, in my view, have been led by men and women who possesses qualities such as compassion, eloquence, humility, and bravery. We need leaders who showcase these characteristics of empathy and strength while inspiring the broader public to pursue their own dreams. Before we get to the gist of our conversation, let me thank Busi, who is the technical producer of the show. Um, Busi, thank you very much in advance for the work that you do. Um, if you, if it had not been a few, the show would not be um, as great as, as, as it is. Once again, thank you. I often invite thought leaders, esteemed guests, uh, to this morning, it's not an exception. I am joined by Billy Silicone, who is an author, internationally acclaimed inspirational keynote speaker, a personal and organizational effectiveness specialist, as well as a successful businessman. The thrust of our conversation is, as it were, we are honing in on leadership challenges and opportunities which can be pro- harnessed, provided we act diligently uh, as businesses are <coughs> beginning to recover from COVID-19. Without any waste of time, let me take this opportunity to welcome Billy. <clears throat> Billy, once again, welcome. It has been a while since you and I have been on air. 
good morning to your listeners and good morning, my good doctor, and thank you very much for the invite. I really feel exceptionally honored to be part of this amazing and esteemed show that you're hosting. Thank you very much, Billy. As we kick start, I mean, the gist of our conversation, as I've alluded to earlier, is that of leadership. The first question that one might ask in a political space is, can we claim that our politicians are leaders? Well, Nimrod, for many years we've been we've been laboring this conversation, and uh, you know I, I say to people that knowledge gives you power, but uh, character makes you a great leader. And when we really talk about authentic leadership, we've had what I call positional leaders, people who became leaders by virtue of being given a position out of patronage by a political party that has been ruling this country for a long time and has actually destroyed the economy of this country. So with and at the political end, we, we really, really, and we still, if you look at the current ANC, uh, you know, regional conferences, you can see, I mean, the p- kind of people that are getting into power are, are becoming worse and worse and worse. So therefore, in the political space, unfortunately, we, we just don't have leaders. You know, we, we need a new kind of cadres, you know, a new kind of men and women who have the heart of the people of this country in their hearts, you know, because... I mean, really, I mean, we spoke, you, you mentioned earlier on that the Gini coefficients in this country were number one in the world, were the most unequal society in the world. And how long has that been? You can check. It's been for more than 10 years. Nothing has changed, you know. And uh, and now you look at all these sporadic things that are happening around our country. It, it really shows that we, we are a ruleless country. We, we don't have leaders. I mean, I'm very sorry to say that our current president came with all kinds of slogans and songs and whatever. He's really, really disappointed. Absolutely disappointed. So we don't, unfortunately. I'm quite fascinated by your reference to, firstly, the issue of positional power, which comes at the back of any person who has been appointed as MEC minister and so on and so forth. The assumption that you're making is that the positional power does not necessarily warrant you or get you to become effective leadership. You also make reference to the whole notion of patronage which presuppose that patronage, obviously, it, it's not ideal. That's the, the sense I'm getting. And secondly, it denounces the idea of meritocracy. Yeah. Could you just take us through your thought processes around patronage system, um, juxtaposed it with meritocracy? Let's look at the milieu or, or the environment in which the ANC is operating. Let's look at the current crop of ministers that are having. I mean, of all these ministers that we're having now, who are sitting in, in, in parliament, really, who among them, has a stellar record of delivering something amazing. Really, who? I mean, let's look at the one who likes to be on television more than anybody else, our Minister of Police. What is he doing? What, what has he done? I mean, we, we've just had an issue in Krugersdorp where the community took control of the situation and changed it. The police there have been under the, the corrupt hand of these people for many, many years. For many years. I mean, pointing, you know, the saddest thing that has happened uh, in Nimrod is two days ago, we were celebrating a very sad day in the democratic dispensation. The mowing down of people in Marikana. Ten years down the line, nobody has been held accountable. Nobody. Nobody. No policeman who shot, no, the, the commander who gave commands. Nobody has been held accountable. We have a president who was complicit in this whole issue, who had said that he will go and apologize and meet his families. Ten years down the line, he has not done it. And the same president who would then come with a slogan that says, the nine wasted years, the nine wasted years. He was deputy president within those nine wasted years. What was he doing? So, again, if you look at all of these issues, you've got men and women, for argument's sake, I'm very sorry, I just have to say it. 
So for nine years, Cyril Ramaphosa has been clinching his teeth, not wanting to do anything because he wanted to fulfill his personal ambition of becoming a president. He did not clinch his teeth because he wanted to serve the nation. No, it was a personal ambition. And now he's sitting in the throne of power. What is he doing? Absolutely nothing. So if we if you then look at our society, where it is now, we've got very capable men and women, me and you know, who, because they are not within certain cycles and certain factions, will never be afforded the opportunity to even spend half a day leading any process in this country that we know they've got the capability to turn around. So as far as meritocratic uh, processes of appointing people in this country doesn't exist, we don't, people don't even know what, what is it when you talk about meritocracy. They don't know what it means because we have never been a meritocratic society. From day one when the NC took power, it was about patronage and about factions. Which factions you belong to and what position can they give you? And that position is not also based on your competency. It is based on what deals you can push to who so that people can smoke the expensive cigars, drive the expensive cars, and, and drink expensive alcohol. It has just been that narrative. You know, I make a very sad joke, and I say, if only 15% of the people that got corrupt tenders in Limpopo, only 15% of them started legitimate businesses, the economy of Limpopo would be something else. But unfortunately, no, it hasn't happened. It's about patronage, it's about class materialism, and it's about conspicuous consumption at a level that has never been seen ever anywhere in the world. That's all there is to it. We're not shifting the nation. And then the NC, they would attack each other in funerals, and that's it. They would, they would criticize each other. Every minister who comes in pretends as if he was never in South Africa, that, you know, the job that he's getting is the first time he's getting the job, that it does not even belong to the NC. He comes with this whole kind of, oh, I'm going to do A, B, C, D, and whatever. And down the line, they do absolutely nothing. So I think as a society, we need a societal-driven social compact. We need to decide as the people of this country. What is it that we want? And this thing that we want, how are we going to get it? I actually have a crazy idea. Just hold on to that beautiful, crazy idea. We'll come back just in a second. (laughs) Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. You've just joined us. This is Beyond Governments. I'm having a fascinating conversation with Willis Lagan, who is an author, internationally acclaimed inspirational keynote speaker, a personal organization, an effectiveness specialist, as well as a successful businessman. But businessman. The thrust of our conversation with Billy is the leadership issues and challenges that that is confronting South African body politic and how do we manage or how do we change that particular narrative to a point where we could be emulated amongst the best in the world, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, you name it. We are among the worst countries in so many ways. So these are obviously issues that we try to grapple with and in trying to to make sense or or excavating our very dreadful uh, circumstances as it were. Before we took that uh, short break, Billy made very interesting observation, which I want to take through around the, the social compact but before we get to the social compact, Billy, what is that crazy idea that you wanted to share with the listeners? Okay, so, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a professor in Mumbai in the country, and there was a, a session, you know, on the Nelson Mandela Day. And then we had a leadership conversation. I think there was about, I don't know, 80 of us. And we're trying to say, what are the things that we need to do to change this country? And I said, you know, and Mark Banks also spoke about it, but I, I, I spoke about it in a, a much more in-depth way. And, and I said to myself, you know, Dr. Nimrod, what this country needs at the moment, we need to recruit to recruit as a country 100 people. 
100 top competent people from intelligence, from police, from health, from infrastructure, from education. We need to say to people, we need 100 competent people who can turn around departments or, or deal with the top challenges that we're facing, give them a 36-month contract. So here's how we do this. thing: We say, you know, constitution or no constitution, the country's in trouble. So we say... Department of this, department of that, department of that. Here are the departments, here are the charities that they have. They've got all the policies, but they've never implemented. They always take budget back to Treasury. They're not making things happen. There's debt in corruption and stuff like that. And then we say to these people, send us your CVs. And we'll create a panel of, of people in society who then go through the CVs and then choose three of the top in every sphere of, of government and then interview these people. And these people are almost like an idol, but an idol for implementation. And they'll come and tell the nation, that if they were given the opportunity for three years, 36 months, to lead this particular department, what are the four critical things that they believe they can achieve that can shift us forward? And once we've got these 100 people, we then deploy them in, in these departments to go and deal with specific challenges that are facing us. And they almost become like super DGs, you know? And you then create with them what I call a middle office. So there's the minister, there's the DG, and there's the department. So these men and women, you deploy them between the, the department and the DG, almost like a, a middle office, but their responsibility is to deal with four critical challenges that that department is facing as far as delivering services to society. And we give them a 36-month contract, we pay them market-related salaries, and we, we let them get on with the business of the day. I can promise you now, within 12, 18 months, we will see a difference in our society. Because at the moment, the people that have been given the baton to lead the church in transformational society are not doing their job. We all know that they are not just doing their job. And why are they not doing their job? Because there are no consequences. Nobody gets fired for not doing anything. Actually, in this country, people fail forward. Somebody messes up a department, they get put into another department. They get put into another department. I mean, recently I saw in the newspaper day before yesterday or yesterday, the Speaker of Parliament wants to spend 1.5 million buying two new BMWs. I mean, are you kidding me? What are we doing? Why do we still allow these things to happen? Unchallenged. So that's my crazy idea. You need 100 competent people. Black, yellow, Indian, it doesn't matter. We can then be given four challenges that are critical to shift this nation forward. And I can promise you, it will happen. The truth of the matter is that when you are in crisis, you do need a people with, with ideas. Ideas take this country, or any country for that matter, to a different height. Perhaps maybe how would it be if if these ideas were to be couched in a social compact? For a simple reason, you can deploy these people provided there is sufficient consensus on the side of the populace to give them space to breathe and support them. Wouldn't you perhaps maybe look at how social compact being an instrument which would give these hundred people who would have been deployed in critical position to try and address critical issues that are facing the country, whether is it in municipalities, yes. around the building issues, around the potholes, and so on and so forth, because they still have to work through people. It means the subordinates or the directorates which they will be overseeing needs to be onboarded and supported. Your take on that? I think you look at those guys that do scenario planning. I don't know what they call that group that does scenario planning around mm. where we go in the Guaraguara, you know, those kind of scenarios that they share. If we look at what those guys' research say, I forgot who they're called. They're based in Midland somewhere. If we look, already we've, we've got data, you know, Nimrod, in this country. We've got very, very hard data about what is working, what is not working, what the expectations of the people are, and those kind of things. If we take that and, again, like, like you're saying, align it with the social compact, because I can tell you now, 
We don't need another summit, man. I mean, I hear, oh, we need a summit on this. We don't need another summit. We're, we're summited out as a nation. We need actions, you know. So I believe if you look at our society, the way it is spread. I mean, let me give you an example. Kaiser Chiefs alone has got more fans than the United than NC members. Chiefs alone has <laughs> got over three million fans. Registered paying card carrying members. Now, to get a social compact to make people agree in this country on which direction to be taken, it's easy. It's not rocket science. If you look at the religious organizations, if you look at one ZCC has got how many members? More than 14 million members. You know, so getting a social compact, it's not a challenge. The challenge is getting the right kind of people doing the right kind of job. And again, when these men and women get deployed, the teams that are already there have to report to these people or they must create their own uh, special forces, for lack of a better word, you know, a team of 30, 40 people who then help them to implement. But Nimrod, we've had, you know, summit for this, summit for that, summit. No, we can't be doing summits anymore. We have to shift this nation. And I can tell you now, these sporadic little things that we're seeing happening all the time. Everybody's talking about our own Arab Spring. The hand grenade has left the hand. It's on its way to hit the floor, and a big explosion will happen. Until we stand up as a nation and as a society and understand that we can no longer trust the body politic. We cannot. For 28 years, we've been saying the same thing over and over and over again, and yet still nothing happens. And by the way, I'm not saying totally nothing happens. We should not forget that there are things that have been achieved in these 28 years. We should not forget that before the NC took over, our government was completely bankrupt because apartheid was a failed state. We should not forget those kind of little things. However, we had the fiscus, we had access to fiscus, we had access to very dynamic and highly operational state-owned enterprises who all of them were taken to the ground, completely obliterated. And how did that happen? It was just the culture of, of, of corruption and impunity. I mean, yesterday I saw in the papers again, the chairperson of the National Lottery, He's resigning because she's running away from a disciplinary hearing because she took money to buy a house. Why are these people not getting arrested? Why? The previous chairman also took money and he bought the house for 28 million and they set up bogus NGOs, whatever. Why are these people not getting arrested? Why do they simply resign? You know, so if you look at now what happens with the people in the ground in Tembisa and Alexander, they look at the guys at the top and says, these guys are getting away with it. So what are we going to do? We're going to commit the smaller crimes and do our own little corruption scams in the bottom because nobody gets taken to jail for anything in this country. I mean, we've had trillions disappear. We know who takes this money, but there's just no action. A national intelligence agency, I mean, who are these guys anyway? Who cannot even pick up the Zamazamas? I mean, I mean, are you kidding me? What, what, who are these people? And what is their job? The July riot. How can they not see the July riot? How can people be arrested after a year? Come on, guys. There's something fundamentally wrong in this society. This body politics just don't have the idea and the capabilities to take us to the promised land. We have to now, as a society, say that's it. Say, so, oh, our intelligence can't even pick up the Zamazamas. I mean, really, can, I can take my guys from Tamis, I can promise you, we can find out where these guys hang around. And we've got a whole state apparatus called intelligence agency. I don't know what they do. Nobody knows what these guys do. I think what is coming out strongly from your observations and input, Billy, is the absolute absence of consequence management, which is very glaring. We have seen it. You've made interesting observation about the fact that not all was doom and gloom when the when the AC took over. Um, however, they've managed to dilapidate most of the well-functioning institutions. You know, teachers' college, which were run down, no longer there. Nurses' college, no longer there. State-owned enterprises, well-functioning, but none of them are well-functioning purely because of the cater deployment that you've 
correctly alluded to. But here's the issue, uh, David. You can deploy these 100 people, give them all the munitions that, you, that they need, but we still sit with the elephant in the room, political will. How do you navigate that political will? Because at this point, there are two issues that I want to put to you. One, do you get a sense that politicians have got so much power or we have surrendered so much of our powers to politicians purely because we thought they will be salvage the situation? That, is that a fair assessment to suggest that politicians have been given too much power? I think another challenge that we must also accept is that we've got a very passive citizenry, you know. So hence the, the assumption that these politicians have got power. This is assumed power, not, not real power, because the citizens are not active themselves. Again, the citizens are not active themselves because they've been, you know, I mean, if you look at this, the issue of grants, if you look at the issue of the 350s that have been given to people now, you're now creating a society of people that are completely dependent on the state. And each time they want to raise an issue, you then say to them, if you do this, I'm going to stop that, you know. And this was deliberate. It was, it was strategic. It was almost like a mafia organization deciding how do we take control of the city and scare people off so that they can pay us protection. It's the other way around. Now, this power that, the, the assumed power that uh, the politicians have, also is happening because of our citizens being very passive. You know, I was telling a, a guy in Tembisa that, you know, the Municipal Management uh, Act allows people to go and sit in when they, there's a tender uh, briefing or a tender opening. And people can ask tough questions around tenders. And this guy was like, really? I didn't know. I said, yes, you don't know because you're not, you're not active as a citizen. You're very passive. So we have active citizens. We need to increase the education around citizens in this country because I think most black people don't understand uh, patriotism, number one. We don't understand how to become a citizen. And remember that for many years we were told make the country ungovernable. And nobody came back to change the narrative and say, now this is our country. We are not governing. You can't make it ungovernable anymore. I mean, if you look at Tembisa, the Tembisa riots that happened a few days ago, burned the very same building which is supposed to give them service. Again, it's cultural inheritance of this making the country ungovernable. But again, where was the intelligence? Because before this thing happened, Nimrod, people had, I mean, there were stories that some people are going to pay people to do these kind of things so that, you know, because the DA is in power. We've had all of these things. We, I don't live in Tembisa. I have interest in Tembisa because my family is there. But I was sitting out there in a golf course and I was hearing these stories. Now, where was the intelligence? I mean, I was hearing these things before they happened. And they happened exactly the same way that they said they would happen. Again, we have to create a holistic way of dealing with these issues. But the absence of leadership, and I'm, not, I'm talking about real leaders that have got good character that hold this country at, at the top of the agenda, it's our biggest challenge. And by the way, it is easy for us to point at government, Nimrod. Who makes the government corrupt? The private sector. Who deals with private sector corruption? We all know, you know, we've had scandals in this country, the, you know, that scandal of that corporate, that scandal of Hewlett's, that scandal of whatever. And when it happens in the corporates, they don't call it corruption, they call it uh, accounting, whatever. They've got beautiful fancy names for it. So as a society, we've got to call corruption what it is. We've got to call incompetent what it is. We've got to call lack of leadership what it is. We've got to call, in, you know, docile uh, citizens uh, what it is. We've got to label these things clearly, accept them that we don't do them very well. And then say to ourselves, how do we collectively, collectively steer this ship to face a direction that we all want? Because nobody's yeah. going to win at the end of this day. We will all lose. On that note, Billy, let's take a quick break. We'll come back in just a second.
Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. You've just joined us. We're having very fascinating and thought-provoking uh, conversations with the one and only Billy Silicardi, who is an author, internationally acclaimed, inspirational keynote speaker, a personal and organizational effectiveness, effectiveness specialist, as well as a successful businessman. The thrust of our conversation is leadership challenges and opportunities which can be used to harness um, uh, the business recovery from COVID-19. Um, if you've joined us before we took that break, Billy made a number of very interesting insights and observations on what is currently wrong, but he's also offered us a sense of a direction in terms of how to address some of these particular issues. Um, one biggest issue that, that needs to be addressed is the passiveness of our citizenry. He made, uh, he alluded to the fact that most people don't even know that when tenders are open, there are provisions that are meant to be there to ensure that people understand the whole issue of tender processes. He also made um, indication of what seems to be a deliberate ways in which deliberate ways in which the politicians have sort of um, dumbed it down to look up a better way. Education in respect to um, um, active citizenry, and he also made an observation about what has happened recently in, in Tambisa to the extent that again intelligence was found wanting when he himself, as an ordinary folk, was able to pick up words around the, the environment about things that were being planned and subsequently came to fruition. So, and again, he says that there's obviously a sense of absent leadership. And his final closing mark before we went to the break was that in the absence, in the absence of leadership, or let me put it this way, we often forget that who makes government corrupt? Private sector makes government corrupt. And the narrative that is used in the public sector it's not synonymous to corruption. To quote him, said we use fancy words such as accounting irregularities. This is something that has happened at Hewlett, something that has happened at Stanhope, something that happens at PwC, something that has happened at Deloitte, and so on and so forth. These are typical examples of how the narrative changes when we speak of corruption in a, in a private sector, as opposed to the same or absence of rigor in labeling corruption in a public sector. Billy, am I correct to sum up your thought processes on these issues that you alluded to before we took that short break? Absolutely, 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 Dr. Nimrod. I think, uh, I say to people, if we are not part of the solution, we are part of the problems, you know. And uh, I, I, for myself, believe that every one of us has what it takes to, in your own small little corner, to effect change. And, and and because of this lack of understanding what patriotism is about, the lack of understanding what a good citizen is about, everybody out there is running their own little scam because it seems like we are now the scam capital of the world. You know, everybody is just everybody is running a scam literally. And and for me it's 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 a sad, it's very sad. And and like I'm saying, we all can and we all should hold each other to the highest of standards, which I don't think we do. We're not holding each other to the highest of standards. I mean, we don't. And if we don't, who else is going to? And you know, sometimes it's easy for us to talk about other countries and how bad they've made things happen. I used to talk about Ghana and, and South Korea being born on the same day. Look at what South Korea is done. Look at what Ghana is not doing, blah, blah, blah. And one day I'm sitting down and I'm thinking, I'm being the worst of hypocrites because I'm part of South Africa. And in 1994, on the 7th of April, 
something unbelievably human shattering happened in Rwanda. On the 7th of April 1994 was the beginning of the genocide in Rwanda. 20 days from that day, it was the 27th of April 1994, we went for our first democratic elections. If you look at both countries, 28 years down the line, chalk and cheese, Rwanda has recovered from that genocide. They are building an amazing economy. They are building an amazing country. And here we are, we are regressing, we are working backwards. And being part of this of the citizenry, I'm also part of that narrative. Even though I tried my own little way to make things happen, it is quite an awakening for you to understand that you're also part of the narrative. I'm here, I'm South African, you know. Have I been loud enough? Have I been active enough? Have I hold myself to the high stock standards? I don't know. I'm doing the best that I can. But I truly believe that we could, could do better. We are better people. You know, on Saturday I was watching rugby with my son and his, and his friend, you know. And when the game started, there was a flyover by uh, South Air. And I was sitting watching on television and I could see the atmosphere in the stadium. It was just absolutely electrical. And you could see that South Africans on a good day want the best for themselves. But why are we so, why is it so difficult for us to translate that euphoria, that coming together, that union into, in, into the, into the world of work, into the world of government, into the world of, of leadership, into the world of citizenry? Why are we, why, why are we failing? When it comes to translating these things, we've had many, many poignant moments in this country that has brought us back together as black, white, colored Indians, you name it. And then we lose it again. I think the operative word there, Billy, is uh, lack of trust or the trust that has been diminished irreparably. Uh, perhaps maybe irreparably might be a harsh word, um, but it's very clear that the trust deficit between and amongst um, different constituencies in the country um, is very down. And you're quite correct that the ownership lies with you and me. Mm. Uh, we do not have to be part, we don't have to point fingers at the leaders. We also need to take some level of accountability. And I think it's very difficult when you are reflecting on your own base, the extent to which you are doing utmost best. And the question would be, how many of us sit in um, community engagement? How many of us sit in community policy forum? How many of us support the Chamber of Commerce subcommittees? How many of us do X, Y, Z? Yeah. How many of us go to a library with a book over the weekend to read for the indigenous and so on? So there's a lot of things that we all need to work toward mm. um, to ensure that we also are part of the solution. But be mm. that as it may, there's also a, a bigger wave that is needed. We do need um, leaders who would able to harness all these different energies, harness all these different energies and put them to good use. Because there's no point, it's quite discouraging. I'm sure millions of South Africans are doing their bit on a day-to-day basis. Mm. But we don't have that, that conduit, that channel that could be used. And unfortunately, still rest with those that have a formal power, which they have literally abdicated that responsibility in their own myopic, uh, small battles. Caught there, caught there, caught there. Don't you think that's, that's something that is missing as well? So that whoever comes in is able to marshal all of these energies to a point where we could build something of significance as a collective. Nimrod, the, the question of leadership and the way that we, we sometimes look at it, I think the challenge that we have as people, I think it's a global issue, man. I don't know. We need to change this paradigm of wanting a messianic figure, you know, who would then come with solutions for us. I, I think that's where we lose it. Yes, we need... When, when somebody is in a position of leader, they need to have that ability and that charisma to, to galvanize people behind a vision. But I think the people themselves must also be hungry for a bigger vision and a bigger outcome of their lives. I mean, 
we always talk about Singapore. It's a beautiful example, you know. It's an amazing example. But if you go to Singapore, if I ask you now who's the Prime Minister of Singapore, you'd never know. You know, most people don't know. You know why? Because people in Singapore now are in charge of their lives. They lead themselves. There is a person. But that person is more symbolic than they are practical in galvanizing people's lives. Because the culture was built of creating a society that is meritocratic, a society that is forward-looking, a society that is that is always wanting to do better and become better. And now it has become a societal culture, almost. So that's why, even, you know, after Lee Kim Yo, we, we, we don't really know. I mean, some, if you ask people, they'll never tell who's the, who's the pr- current prime minister. Because the nation, the nationhood has been formed and people are now really leading in all different aspects of their of society, in health, in, in business, in, in policing, in all these kind of things, because they now realize that it is not up to this one messianic figure. It is up to everybody to make things happen. Even though society has been geared in the way things have been geared, that you will have a leader who's going to become a prime minister or a president. But at the end of the day, we, we need to also take some serious responsibility as individuals and society and say, this is for us, you know, policing, health, all of these things are for us. And if we are the people that are going to destroy them because we're angry, it doesn't take us anywhere. Uh, Billy, unfortunately, we, we, we are literally running out of time. Let's take a quick ad break and come back in a second as we wrap up our very interesting uh, conversation, which I think it's um, not only just thought provoking, but makes one to think and think deeply. And hopefully out of this, we'll all do something out of once, once you're done. Let's yeah. take a break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is our final leg of a very inspirational conversation that makes one think deeply and differently and how to act. I'm joined by Billy Silgan, who is an author, international and acclaimed inspirational keynote speaker, a personal and organizational effectiveness specialist, as well as a successful businessman. I mean, so far, you've really given us a food for thought, a lot of issues that we still need to mull over around passive citizenry, assume power of the politicians, the need for an aggressive um, education for citizenry about their own rights, and the corruption between the different narrative that is used between government and public sector when it comes to corruption, and the need for us to move away from this messiah syndrome, look at what we can do amongst other through social compact, uh, which merit or underpinned by sense of meritocracy to a point where the entire nation could move towards a self-regulation as opposed to being regulated because there's a big difference. So these are some of the issues that I'm picking up as I'm trying to summarize your thought process, which has given me an aha moment in so many ways. Your parting shot as we wrap up the show. My parting shot is quite simple. You know, we are at this amazing radio station, you know, high FM, you know. So I'm a, how can I say, I'm a, I am have strong affinity and strong connection with the Jewish community, you know, because us and the Jewish community were one of those highly subjugated people globally. And yet the Jewish community always comes up on top. I keep saying this to many, many people. I think we need to sit down and have very serious conversation with the Jewish community. And on one thing, how have the capacity to build a community? The building of the community is an African thing, but we've lost it. We've now become individuals. Therefore, we cannot become a collective. And I think we need to learn on how to build strong, solid communities that are self-reliant. That's what we need to do. Thank you very much, Williams. That's something that uh, will certainly facilitate uh, yeah. because it's, it's definitely not where the 
given our current dispensation, we've always believed in the environment of dialogue. I think you should create a dialogue. I think there should be a panel that talks about, you know, the commonalities of, of the African and the Jewish communities and how we have lost our sense of community and how they need to re-teach us on how to re-educate us on how to rebuild that sense of community because we don't have it anymore. Yes, indeed, definitely. That's something that we can look at. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here. Once again, Billy, uh, thank you very much for gracing Beyond Governance with your um, insight, insightful observations. Thank you very much, and have a beautiful day. There you are. Uh, that was Billy Stelekane, who's giving us thought leadership issues that we can all need to look forward to as we try to salvage what is clearly missing in our leadership space. Let's do this again next week. It has been absolutely pleasure having you on board. I certainly hope you have benefited the same way I've benefited. Shalom.